Okay. Not like super radio, but like you're going up. Like yeah. you're confused about if you are the host yeah. or if that's your name. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm Jamie Mott. to the Track and Food Podcast. I'm going to be your host, Jamie Ma. I'm sitting with a good friend of mine, Mickey. Mick. Um, oh, or Mick, if you'd like to go back. How are you doing, I Mickey? go by Mick now. I'm great. <laughs> How are you? How are you, Jamie? I'm doing good. Not hungover? Yes, I'm very hungover, unfortunately. Oh, you are? Yes. You don't look hungover. You look good. Sure. Uh, went to the Cobalt's eight-year anniversary party last night here in Vancouver, and uh, it's nice to see some old friends I hadn't seen in a while, so that was, a, was pretty fun, but I'm definitely uh, feeling it this morning, that's for sure. I'm pouring tea into the microphone. Yes, and I never drink tea, so this is this is also helping me a lot. Actually. All right, so tell me a little bit about your uh, writing career, Jamie. Uh, my writing career has been going on a little bit more. Uh, is that the right word, career? Yeah, career. it's career. Uh, if you call it a career, it's something. Like hobby. Took, yeah, my little hobby. Uh, outside of bartending and being a sommelier, I've been writing for a long, long time. But I took a little bit more seriously about a year and a half ago and I started this little publication called Track and Food. I write it on Medium, which is basically, it's it was started by Evan Williams a couple, about five, six years ago and he's the guy, one of the founders of uh, Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so he's, he's pretty cool. Anyways, it's basically a combination of Twitter and Blogger and it, it's an amazing platform for people to go on there and see each other's writings. Uh, it's, only, it's only been two years that's been out? No, it's been around for about, I'd say about four or five years. Four or five years. So, yeah. About that range. So, and it really started taking off about two years ago. Um, wow, I've, I've known it for probably two months. Yeah, well, the, one of the reasons why that I got into it was I wanted to start my own website and I was going to use Squarespace. And obviously a big fan of Bill Simmons and the stuff that they were doing on Grantland. Mm-hmm. When he left Grantland and was fired, obviously, and left ESPN. He launched their new website right now, The Ringer, and they launched it on Medium. And when I saw that, and I, I was, I'd gone to Medium because of that, and I saw what they were doing there. And for someone like myself who has really minimal skills when it comes to like building websites and how expensive they can be, um, launching my own publication on Medium was super simple and easy. And I'm not trying to plug them right now, by the way. But it's just been a very... Inadvertent plug. Yeah, exactly. But it's been a Play very... that plug. <laughs> it's been a very good process so far. It's, it's streamlined. It's very easy. And it's also easy for me to like navigate and it's 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 really built for writers which has really been really cool and it's helped me kind of hopefully establish my voice and figure out what i'm trying to talk about and uh yeah Uh, jamie um turned me on to the website and it's really cool really clean modern easy to use and i really like one of the articles you wrote on there which is i think your most popular one yeah it's my most popular one and that one is the uh is it fair to ask a chef to work 14 hour days which i just read for the first time, right before you got here. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. No, I read it uh, yesterday. What'd you think? I read it a couple times. Really good. For our listeners that don't know, I myself am in the industry. I am a bartender for a hotel in the city. I've worked in the restaurant industry for 17, 18 years. Yeah, I've been washing bits. dishes went for Earl's when I was 17 years old. So I definitely did relate to a lot of the content in this uh, in this article for sure. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I think both of us seeing us, we've worked in this industry for as long as we have. And it's an industry that's I've grown to love. I, I think it's like anything that anybody gets really good at. You slowly find things and you find your, your passion and you find what you love about it. And you, I think what I love most about hospitality is I love the culture, the people, 
And it's one of the things that I love about track and food. Why I like writing about it is it's, it's, it's what I do every day in my life. And I, you know, when I'm not at work, one of my favorite things to do is just go to restaurants. It seems like we had sort of almost the same like career arc yeah. starting in the back house. But I think that if you talk to most people, maybe that would be the case that a lot of people did start in the back house. Yeah, like, sort of in the dish slash prep area. Yeah, like my first and then job moved out to the front of house as busing, and then eventually serving and whatnot. Yeah, like I did managing. a horrible job when I was seventeen. I mean, I was trying to. Maybe they weren't letting you serve tables. When no, you no, no, I was a dishwasher. I did it for like two days, and I was the god awful. <laughs> hey, seventeen, right on me too. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> my god, like dishwashing. I have so much respect for anyone who does that longer than a week because it's just the most awful job in the world. But you, what you realize is, and I think this is what this article touched on, is that I have a lot of friends now who still work as chefs. Is it fair to ask a chef to work 14-hour days when you talk about that idea? I mean, I've known chefs who that's like common practice. It's, it's still common practice. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that that's necessarily something that I would say advocate to change. That's not really what I'm trying to get at with this article. This article touches on the idea that is it fair to ask a chef to work 14-hour days for the kind of money that they're getting? When I read the article in the Globe and Mail and what Alexander Gill wrote, she wrote this like, really great piece. And then she starts interviewing some of the writers or some like fellow chefs and people that work in the industry. One of the co-owners of Annalena, Mike Robbins, he writes this, he just comments and he says, basically just, you know, these chefs nowadays, they want more money and we can't pay them more. And like, where do they get off thinking that they can do all these things? And, you know, like they want all the prestige, but they don't want to put the work in. Right. right. And I'm, I'm all for like understanding that you have to earn your place. But at the end of the day, you know, if a guy is making $12 an hour or $14 an hour and he's working 15 hour days, where is the end result in that? Like, unless he's going to become a head chef somewhere or he's going to be running his own restaurant, which doesn't happen for most chefs. How long can you do that vocation for? And how long can you expect him to basically work for a poverty wage in an industry? I'm not saying that the margins are there for restaurant owners to pay them more. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you can't get mad at them for asking for more, you know? Yeah, I, I I think I mean it's a really I think it bears to mention that this like day and age we live in in 2018 comparatively to like ten ten years ago even like maybe seven six years ago just with the vast amount of information and connectivity of the world I feel like the stigma of like oh I work in a restaurant or I'm a server or I'm a chef has really come to a point where it's not like a profession or a yeah. professional choice that's frowned upon anymore yeah. it's actually in most circles celebrated and I think. That is a uh, as a big part of the Food Network shows, all the stuff that you see and like the famous chefs that you're mentioning, people aspiring to be that. I think compared to like years past, it's way more relevant and socially accepted. But if you – so, you know, if you're a young 22, 23-year-old kid and you have a real passion for the culinary arts and you went to school – it's totally reasonable to think that you could possibly, you know, yeah. get to that point or there would be an opportunity in your career path that you'd be able mm. to do that. Most times, that's not the case. Yeah, and Vancouver is very expensive. And there's nothing, like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with if you want to become a chef and you want to grow in that industry. That's great. I want you to do that. I want you to work at the laboratories and the McKenzie Rooms and the Kisatantos. And I want, if you're 22 years old and you want to be the next Joel Watanabe, and that's kind of where I started with the article, is this idea that, like, for you to become a Joel Watanabe, who has done some fantastic stuff up at Baobay and Kisatanto, how... If I'm 22 years old, how do I become him? Well, not everyone has the ability to get, you know, $500,000 to open up their own little restaurant, which generally is what it costs. And then the other one is, is you need a really good partner and you have, you have to have a really good concept. Okay, so if you can't get to that and then, you know, like if you're, a, if you're a young aspiring chef, like where's, where's the end game for you? If you go to medical school and you become, you, you know, when you're done, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to get paid well. There's there's something there for you to, to push towards. Right. Like you said, there's only a few select few head chef's jobs. 
But like, let's say you, let's say you want to do this career and like you end up working in a restaurant for, you know, you're 22 years old and you like just hanging out with your friends and you make some food and you're, you're a line chef or you're a sous chef somewhere and you work at this one restaurant and you like going out for beers every night and it's fine. You're 22. That's what you do. You get drunk, you have fun. You, that's a great job. And, and, and you make, you know, you're making 15 bucks an hour. There's nothing wrong with that at that time. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're 28 years old and you got your girlfriend and you've been together for three years and you guys want to get a little bit more serious in your life. And things start to change and you you want to maybe buy a condo, you want to maybe get a car and you want to maybe have children. Like, so when Mike Robbins says this thing, like, where, you know, like these guys want to work at 11 Madison Park and they want to work at Noma. These are some of the best restaurants in the world. And he's just like, where do they get off thinking that they can get like 18 bucks an hour? Well, why shouldn't they deserve to get 18 bucks an hour? You're asking them to work, you know, like right. there's, there's not, I'm not saying like, if you can't pay them that much, then that's understandable, but they shouldn't, you, no chef should ever be challenged or made to feel guilty for asking for more money in the sense of that, especially when you're asking them to work. Most chefs get to work every day, like 11 o'clock and they're there till 12. They're working 12, like 12, 13 hour days, Absolutely. five days a week. And you, a lot of them, they get day rate, which is like $130 a day. You, you divide that by 12 hours. You're basically paying them like 10 bucks an hour. And that's just like, I just had a situation where I work literally two days ago where I have this new chef and he, we were in the locker room getting changed and just having a chat. And I overheard a conversation with him with another uh, chef that had been there forever for, you know, 10, 12 years at the same place where I work. And he's like, oh, how much over- overtime did you do? Because I, like, oh, I, I did a couple hours. And uh, for me being in the bar, like I'll work overtime sometimes, but very rarely just because it's how it's set up. We don't usually work a lot of overtime. But he was like, I did two hours. And I was like, why did you do two hours overtime? He's like, oh, I have to set up for my shift tomorrow, my prep, or else tomorrow is going to be an even longer day. So even in the world of hospitality, this is a thing where like these guys just like, it's like a set standard that they're going to be there for extra time. And like, what's the point, right? Mm. And so from his perspective, he's just trying to make his next day easier. Yeah. Right. But for a lot of these guys, they're, you know, if they're not super passionate about, say they don't have aspirations to be the next, you know, Joel Watanabe, then really they're just collecting a paycheck and that, that should be on par with everything else. And they shouldn't have to work those extra, like I, I but can I mean, see that point of it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, obviously a lot of this issue stems from the way our society is set up to unfortunately restaurant owners, the, the way our society is set up with like with, with regards to tipping, which essentially takes money out of the owner's hands and that they would normally pay their employees. Okay, where so, they could actually right, spend it out more. Where, da- dial it back for one second. Yeah, well, so but, are you saying you are in favor of the no tipping? I would totally I'm structure? totally I'm totally the, in favor no of no tipping. tipping. I've I've written about it several times and we can talk about that. And in, you're a bartender, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean I say okay, that hold on, hold on. for people listening, <laughs> you just heard Jamie say that he's for the Standard 15% tip model, nor no tipper, autograt, gratuity system. And he is a bartender in the city. Yes, this is very true. I, but just, want, also, I just wanted to make that point. But clear. I'm also, an, like, I understand that I work in a system that benefits me. I work for a great hotel when I make good money and I benefit from tips. And I, my whole career in hospitality has been based on that. I'm just taking advantage of something that's set up in the system. Do I agree with the way it's set up? No, I don't agree with right. it. because Why is it set up? So well, tipping, why are front of house staff... Constantly rushed off the floor for labor, but back house staff is allowed to work on whatever extra projects or whatever, set them up for the next day, whatever. And management is basically run into the ground with this whole dangling of the carrot situation. So why, why is it only the front of house that are exempt from this, like with seemingly like a extortionist mentality from these companies? Well, La- labor extortion, essentially. Well, it totally is. I mean, it, well, I mean, a lot of this is just based on the idea that front of house staff generally are the face of the restaurant, but also with chefs. I mean, for the longest time, like one of the things that I, I'm a big advocate for chef rights. I think chefs get 
100% fucked over so many times. Oh, I, mean, I, they, I I've seen it. Yeah. I see it almost every day. Yeah, like, and the biggest one, you know, even with fellow servers and stuff like this, like, I, and bartenders who, who I see who work in the industry, it's like they complain about having to tip out their kitchen. And I'm like, well, fuck you. What the fuck did you do? You just that's, bring food, you just bring food to a table. Yeah, that's they crazy actually, to me. You you are a cog on a chain, but like you are the least important chain. Like without the bartender, they actually make something. The kitchen guys actually fucking make something. What the fuck do you do? You do nothing. <laughs> yeah. Hottest take so. of the day, right there. <laughs> well, no, but it's just like you know, where do you get off thinking that you get like yeah? So what? Okay, you had this hundred dollar tab, and they tipped, and you got yeah, you got sixteen dollar, you got a sixteen dollar tip, and you're mad that you have to tip out on it. Well, sorry, that's part of the job. With chefs, like yeah, they get higher wages, so they get compensated more but they also work longer hours and they get shitty tip out half the time and it's i mean really at the end of the day it's just like how is it fair for a server or bartender to walk out with 300 dollars in the pocket and the chef worked just as hard as they did and they're getting a 300 dollars tip out every week you know like that's but that's the way the system's set up right now and it sucks i i will say to play devil's advocate that a lot of the staff in the back house aren't necessarily as socially apt oh, no. at Creating emotional connections with the guests, that's, right? I understand. And that's kind of like why those people get picked for those positions or oh, no, hired for those positions, and that's, right? And that's fine. I mean, yeah, there's some I'm people. I'm not saying I'm not advocating that. Just no, 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 clear. But, no, no, but I understand. I understand that there's some people that are, you know, like they, they're shy or they just don't like being in front of the house or like whatever, whatever the reason is. But that doesn't mean that they deserve to be exploited. No, know? absolutely not. You know, like, am I advocating and saying that chefs are going to now just eight hours, that's it. Like they're not going to work long hour days. No, I'm not saying that. Like if a restaurant needs them to work 12 hour days and chefs are more than willing to work those hours and they want to, because a lot of chefs love the hours and they love the, the, it's like the game. They love the adrenaline rush. They love working the work. It's a camaraderie. It's a, you know, I love all that. I respect all that. You know, I'm not trying to advocate and tell restaurants how they should, or like how long they should work. Except, but for, what Mike, I'm saying except is, for Mike Robbins. Yeah. No, what I'm trying to say <laughs> is just pay. <laughs> What I am trying to say is just don't don't be a pompous ass and say, where do they get off thinking that they get to be, you know, that they want more money? No, they should ask for that. Like, there's nothing wrong with them saying, you know, I'm working for you five days a week, 12 hour days. And, you know, I deserve to be paid a real wage for that. I think it's important to make the distinction between because a lot of these and people I've been associated with and who I've known through my entire uh, restaurant career, I guess you can call it restaurant career. There are people, like you just said, that they value the experience, they learn on the job, and a lot of these extra hours that they're working on, I have no doubt, are dedicated to that sole mm-hmm. purpose to eventually get to an area where they're in a sous chef position or they're in a uh, position where they're maybe owning their own restaurant and that sort of things, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to make the distinction because not everyone is in the culinary field to do that, no. right? A lot of people are just in it for as a stepping stone career for something else. Right. Which is a whole other argument that I could easily get into because which irritates the shit out of me. Well, because, yeah, we only have so much time on that. Yeah, because one of the things that drives me nuts about this <laughs> industry is that people use it for, as a platform for another industry. But that's, I think that's slowly starting to change. I think people right, are going tourism, into people, hospitality, yeah, well, that kind well, of thing. Well, people are, people like, like, you can make a career now of being a bartender. You know, you can make yeah, a career absolutely. out of being look a bartender. Look a at really, Grant Sini. Grant Sini. Yeah. Our friend, friend of the show, yeah. Grant Sini. You can also, but you can be, a, you can make a career out of being a sommelier. You can make a career as a, a maitre d'. Yeah, you can you can make a career as being just a restaurant manager. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can make a career as a chef, as a sous chef or a line chef, whatever. Right. That's fine. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to just, you know, basic economics. Yes. What can you pay? Understandable. But I think they deserve to be paid more. I'd like for them to be paid more. It's a, I think it's an industry-wide problem. It's People are always wondering, like, you know, you look at any city, it's a huge epidemic. They, uh, Kevin Alexander wrote a great uh, three articles last year. And he wrote a really good one on chefs and like the chef shortage in America. And he wrote it for the Thrillist. And it was it was gripping in the sense that like people are like, why are the why is there a chef shortage? Well, think about it. If 
they can't be if there's if you if it's so expensive to run their own restaurant, the chances of opening their own restaurant and chances of them ever doing that is probably like slim to none. And then there's not a lot of great, awesome celebrity style jobs anymore. Like really, you know, like the fine dining scene is kind of disappearing. Especially so, in a place so, like Vancouver that's so tiny. Exactly. So if that's going away, and really the only jobs that they're really going to end up working at are like you know the cactus clubs of the world or like just you know so. Where's the dream? What are we doing as an industry or what are we doing as a society to attract chefs to say, yes, you, this is something that you should want to do in this problem? I couldn't agree more with the, I think the tipping should, I think that's the main thing. Just in all the places I've worked at, the front of house just makes so much more cash chips than the mm -hmm. back house. And I think that's very skewed and, and definitely needs to be looked at for anyone yeah, to be and running a successful, and successful it, and restaurant. Like, even if you were going to change it and it would cause someone like myself and, and like yourself who work as bartenders for us to make, let's say, half is what we make right now. But if I made half, but everyone else, everyone who works there, like, I mean, obviously a lot of restaurants nowadays do tip pools. Yeah. And like, they just give you your tips throughout a week, which is great. I love that system. Okay. But does that include the back house or yeah, is that front a lot house? of Yeah. Usually it's back house. They, so they, all employees all on employees. the floor that night get they, an equal split of the tips. Well, I don't know if it's equal. I don't they, they, I think they have like tiers. Like okay. hosts will get less money than like a bartender and, you know, bartenders will get more money than servers or whatever. Like Right. And the tip classification or tier would yeah. be based on your your position your position yeah right? which i so like dishwasher gets x percent exactly. sous chef gets whatever but the great thing about that is at least everyone's getting compensated fairly but, Absolutely. but a lot of restaurants nowadays have it where like the server just makes all the money and they pay a small little tip out and they walk out with 300 and the chef will get 300 for a whole week but they both just work just as hard so it's a broken system it's unfortunately probably never going to change well i think there's there are some companies that have done yeah like danny more. meyer well, and I know I used to work for the global group chain. Yeah. I know that they do have in bonus incentives, labor incentives, which again harkens back to the extra overtime, unpaid overtime hours. But there are different, and you know this as well as I do, there are different companies that approach a, diff a different way and yeah. just have a better way of dealing with it. But overall, I, I definitely think that the tipping structure is totally out of whack. Well, sure. like, well, it's super, like Danny Meyer phased it in last year. Or late, Who's late. Danny Meyer? Sorry, newbie here. <laughs> Danny Meyer is like probably one, he's probably the foremost restaurateur in New York City. Oh, okay. He's the one who started Union City Hospitality, I think it's what's called. Or, and then he's, he's the one who started, uh, he did like 11 Madison Park. He's, he's you can't see me right now, but I'm literally holding up my hands in the air. I have no idea what he's talking <laughs> Shake about. Shake Shack. You've heard of Shake Shack? Oh, I've heard of Shake Shack, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. He's like, he's like, I don't even know of Shake Shack from. Yeah. The web series Hot Ones, where yeah. they eat spicy hot wings. There's only reason I know Shake Shack because okay. someone on there was talking about. It. Yeah, it's great because he's he, well, he started Eating Out Burger and Shake Shack. Well, I read Apparently his book. He read a really he wrote a really cool book back in 2006 called Setting the Table, which I love. It's like if you're kind of a hospitality geek like I am, I read it and it's it's awesome. It's kind of like his kind of like how he got into the industry. He started Union City a Hospitality Group in 1985, and he really barely worked in restaurants. And he was 27. And he was like super ambitious. Found a way to get it open, ran a really awesome restaurant. And then I think he opened up 11 Madison Park and I think in 2000 or 1994 did that. And then he opened up several other restaurants and he's gone on to win like tons of Zagat Awards. And, you know, I think obviously Mission Stars and stuff like that. So he's very influential. But his group, they faced out tipping, their restaurant group, they faced out tipping in 2000, oh, late, 2000, okay. late 2016, I think. Somewhere in there. So they phased it out. So basically, they, it was a pilot project they wanted to start out. And they want, I think he kind of had, felt a lot of the same feelings that I do, and probably a lot of people do, is that it just was unfairly compensating one part of his restaurants, like the, the servers and bartenders, whereas he wanted to fairly compensate everyone. So mm -hmm. he phased it out, 
they now have like, I think it's like just mandatory on everyone's bill. 20%. Uh, it seems very, uh, 20% like uh, hospitality. Socialist fee. and communist undertones, doesn't it? Like, I'm not saying, like, I totally agree, but really it kind of does. It's like everyone fairly and we're all doing the same job and like well, we're an oiled machine. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be one who's like, I definitely would say that if you were to, uh, I lean left when it comes to like political spectrum stuff. So I'm Ooh, this for show, this, this pod just got political. <laughs> I'm for, <laughs> I'm for a lot of the, you know, equality in the, in a lot of things. Like, you know, I'm, I've never been one to think of like a, a capitalist system where like, you know, like all for me and fuck everyone else. But what he's really trying to just get across is that he just wants everyone to just be happy. Yeah. And it, well, it you know, yeah. if you're, if you're a boss and you're an owner and you know that all your employees are leaving every night, you know, happy and they're well compensated, they're going to work harder for you. They're going to be more productive and they're going to be more excited to come to work. That's to me sounds dope, but if they want to go the extra mile, let's, how about we adopt a Scandinavian work week and work four hours a day or five hours a day and work four days a week. Why don't we try that in North America? I wonder where we compare in terms of major cities, cost of living. I think we're in like the top 20. Probably, yeah. Would, but that's, I, that's I feel it. like people, this issue would still be, is obviously yeah. um, prevalent in major cities like New York, obviously San Francisco, yeah. LA. I just don't know enough about it. I don't know anyone that lives there. If anyone's listening to this and knows, please feel free to email us at, just kidding, we don't even have a website yet. You did mention Joel Watanabe, mm-hmm. and I know that he was recently featured in an article about a new place opening on Granville Island, I think? Yeah, I think him. Scout Ro- Magazine. Yeah, so I, I also write for Scout Magazine here in Vancouver, so it's like the preeminent like foodie culture magazine here. It's run by Andrew Morrison, who's awesome, and his wife. Shouts. Yeah, shoutouts to those guys. They're pretty sweet. They do some really cool stuff, and they just featured something about, I think it's with Robert Belcham, who does Campagnolo. And Campagnolo Roma, which are some really good like Italian restaurants here. Joel, Joel, and then two other chefs. I can't, I can't think of their names off the top of my head. But basically, there's I think they're doing something down on Granville Island. It's going to be kind of like a little. It's called Papine, I think is what it's called. They're going to be doing like to go food and stuff like this, and which I think is like I'm, reading that article was really cool because I think what it brought up is I think finally someone is doing something to make Granville Island way better. Yeah, so um, I have the article pulled up here. Uh, Hamid Salim, wow. Salamain, I'm sorry if I butchered that name, uh, Amid, uh, Joel Watanabe, Robert Belcham, and Angus Ann. Yeah, Angus Ann, who does Mainam, that's what he does. Yeah. Yeah, he does Mainam and Fat Mountain, all those sort of stuff. And I'm like, sorry about your name. Yeah, like those chefs are all fantastic, if you've, and the food is delicious. But basically the idea is, I think these guys have wanted to do something for a while, that's kind of what the article talks about. But just for me, anything on Granville Island, if you've ever been to Vancouver, Granville Island is kind of like the touristy little island. But it's been a horror show of just awfulness for years. It really, really? Yeah. Like, I didn't you, know that. The market's great. There's also bridges. The bridges suck. Bridges suck. Oh, so Sandbar sucks. I used to work down there. Did you know that? I did not. I used to work at Sammy J. Peppers. Where's Shouts that? to Mike, Mike and Marv. Where's that? Uh, it is now wet. The very first place when you go over the bridge. Oh, okay. Under the bridge, sorry. Okay. It's the very first place on the left. Oh, okay. I don't know what it's called now, but yeah. it was Sammy J. Peppers. And then it was called wet. W-H-E-T. Like the wet of, how you yeah. wet a blade. I think it's some fucking chef thing. I have no idea. Okay. What are those stones that you uh, sharpen your... Oh, this, oh, yeah. I can't remember what that's called. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we suck. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I worked there for two years. Yeah. I used to hang out at um, Backstage Lounge, man. Yeah. I mean, cool. Which actually recently just closed down, actually. Yeah. I heard yeah. about that. Yeah. I can't just do the show there. But 
Uh, Shoutouts can't rock. Yeah, totally off topic. But this, <laughs> <laughs> no, but like Granville Island, like, yeah, and then Emily Carr just left because Emily Carr, the, uni- the university just left there too. What? Really? Yeah, they're down on uh, Boundary now, or not Boundary, they're like off uh, off Main Street. Like Main so I guess there. Granville Island's going through some changes. Though. Yeah, which is good, which is really good. And what I'm, what really, what the, when I read about this, which like I was really excited about is that Granville Island needs some influx of good stuff and what i mean is like get some really good chefs like these guys down there doing some really good food and some good yeah not cheesy tourist shit. well just cheesy tour- like for vancouver for a city that is on the water and has so many like beaches and everything we have the fucking worst patios and the worst restaurants on the water like there's not one good one none yeah but nobody thinks of Lift vancouver sucks. as like Cordero's as like a co- like a, hot, a hotbed of like new and cool culture it's like we're like the lazy recreational leisure city but yeah like everyone here you know like one of the things people think about vancouver is just everyone's in lululemon pants and running down yeah running how many, by the how many famous artists or musicians can you name that actually are from vancouver besides ryan adams oh he's from vancouver <laughs> he's from vancouver oh i think he's from vancouver okay. i didn't check his wikipedia page lately. Yeah. but everybody's from the east coast everyone's from toronto yeah. or montreal but I mean, Vancouver has got, you know, we've got some of the most beautiful beaches in Canada and like oh, Kids Beach, Third Beach, Second Beach. But what do we got? We got nothing. Like literally Lyft is terrible. Carderos is terrible. Oh. You have Bridges is fucking well, terrible. <laughs> I just have to get the fire extinguisher for Jamie's mic because the takes are on fire. He's very, very opinionated. <laughs> I'm not opinionated. Like those places, are, those places are busy because they're on the water. They're busy because they're on the water and they cater to a, a demographic that's fucking like. I honestly have never been to Lyft. I used to, I used to date a girl that worked there, but I've never been there. Yeah. But it's, it's like, it's like what you said. What was that term? It's like, it's not high end, but it's like high end casual. Yeah, it's high end casual for geriatrics. <laughs> for geriatrics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like these restaurants are popular because they're, they've been around. They have a great location. Apologies to all you geriatrics <laughs> out there. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is there's nothing wrong with those restaurants. They're fine. They offer something for their market. But what I'm saying is there's nothing that's ambitious. On uh, there's no ambitious restaurants. There's nothing that's really kind of really taking the next step with some young entrepreneurs and some like you know like I well, mean aside from Gastown, yeah, and Gastown, maybe Main but that's, Street. But that's why Gastown's really gone through its revival over the last like ten years. Right. It's because an influx of young, energetic people were like, great, we can get some places that have really cheap rent, and we can put some really cool stuff down here, and it's thriving and it's, and it's doing really well, which is awesome, and I love that. And I'm not saying that. And so when you hear about stuff like this in Granville Island, which is fantastic, and I hope these guys like, I think they're going to knock it out of the park. But it's 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 exciting, and I just want to see more of that. This Granville Island is like I like I've been living in Vancouver now for nine years. I never go to Granville Island. Like it's not something that I ever go. To. I haven't been in but just probably about, three years. But just think how great Granville Island could be if it had kind of the same energy that Gaston had. You got an influx of really cool yeah. stuff down there. Really like the name. Like we don't even have one of our top 10 restaurants in the city on Granville Island. Why are we not giving our tourists, you know, some of our best? Why, like, you know, obviously these places that are down there, like, you know, they, they don't need to put out their best because it doesn't matter. People go there regardless. But that's that's the shitty thing about them. But like, even Scream Star City, when it comes to our patios, our best patio in the city is what? The Cactus Club up in English Bay? That's our best patio? Really? Why isn't Bridges should be our, like, Bridges should be, Laboratoire should be at Bridges. That's where yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I feel like though, like Van. Vancouver always has this sort of duality to it. Like half of it's actually really cool and awesome. And then half of it is just like really touristy and lame. And you can say that about a lot of aspects of the city, yeah, and especially in, in the, in the restaurant industry. I don't know any, any cool patios to hang out on. Well, that's what I'm saying. The only one that I really liked was I, well, I mean, and it didn't even have a great view. It was just in Gaston. It was Chill Winston because it's like, a, it was the big circle patio. Yeah, it's too, too many people. It's well, yeah, claustrophobic. But, it, but like the other patio that I like is probably Tap and Barrel in Olympic Village because it has a it has a really nice view of like yeah. the the water and all that stuff. But like and terrible beer. 
Oh yeah, and they do all their well, they don't do anything really good. Yeah, like, they don't have any like really awesome craft stuff. No. So last time I went there, I don't know. But I then, could be wrong. Yeah, and and I get it. Like those spaces that have the best views and the best patios, they generally probably are really expensive, and maybe independent places obviously can't afford them. And that's usually where the best restaurants are. They're small independent places. But it's like I don't know. I don't know how you could get them there. But hearing like Angus on and all these guys doing something on Granville Island. I don't know how hard it was for them to get the space or whatever they're going to be, end up doing, but like that is something that we should be pushing. We should be, you know, the city should be going, okay, you know, Lee Cooper who runs, you know, Laboratoire and now the new restaurant he just opened up, Cookie, you know, guys like that, we should, they Co- should be. Coquine? Cookie, Cookie, it just means shell in French. Oh, uh, well, it's, it seems like this is a pretty, a good step in that direction, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I can't really say I have too many high hopes for the Vancouver scene to all of a sudden be cool and sought after and funky no but maybe yeah. maybe down the road do you you don't have one favorite patio you know what i was uh, jamie and i were talking uh a couple days ago and i totally forgot to do my homework and i really i'm not a patio guy to be honest with you i actually prefer like the clouds and rain oh, really? <laughs> yeah i'm not what you would call someone who likes to get out in the sun and really like enjoy myself. Although I've, I've been working on that. I've probably the last couple of years, I've really been trying to get out more in the summertime, get some sun and get some vitamin D. So but I, I don't like being warm. So I prefer being cold. You're just lame. That's really what you're saying. So. You know what? You can, uh, you can call me lame. I'll take that. I'm, I actually am. I'm quite, quite proud of my lameness. Okay. Yeah. You're an old man. That's what you are now. <laughs> I'm basically two years older than you. One year older than you. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. So. No, I just, uh, enjoy, uh, I enjoy cooler, cooler summer afternoons. 22, 21, 22 for me is perfect. When it gets around 30, I start to just sweat when I wake up. It's disgusting. Like, nah. man, I'm so uncomfortable. And plus the jeans that we wear, like painted on basically. Yeah. Try getting those off in the fucking summer heat. It's not going to happen. You need like a, you need someone to help you. Yeah. Someone on each leg. No, no, no. Give, me, give me 35 degrees. That's, that's, 35? Oh yeah, I love it. That's ridiculous, love man. That's, that's crazy. And you wear all black too. So you're literally wearing boots, black jeans, <laughs> and a black t-shirt in the summertime walking around in 33 degree heat. I also want to talk about David Chang's new thing on Netflix. I don't know if any of you, well, I'm sure a lot of you have actually seen it, but it's his new web series called Ugly Delicious. Did you watch the first episode? I did. Jamie gave me some homework to watch it. I watched it. I definitely thought it was interesting. I'm curious to see what you think about it because I well, think I thought it was. I thought different. it was very interesting for me personally. Um, I don't have cable. I don't really watch TV. My wheelhouse is like Bob's Burgers to documentaries on anything, and I watch a lot of fucking basketball. That's pretty much what I watch, and I also enjoy movies too. But I don't really watch it. I'm not really exposed to that world of like. Is it reality TV? Is it documentary TV? This weird sort of spectrum in between. So for me personally, watching it was really interesting to see like what current, I probably haven't had cable in probably the last 10 years. So to see what current, uh, how the, how like they shoot the thing and how it's all structured, I thought was really interesting. Do you know much about David Chang? I know literally nothing. Oh, okay. Except oh, you know, for what oh, I researched okay. for this podcast. Yeah, so episode. he's he's like a huge chef <laughs> based out of uh, New York. Right. He started the Momofuku restaurant group. Like probably back in two thousand four. Okay, he, he's like a celebrity. Yeah, he's chef. like he, he's like probably the biggest chef in America at the moment. He's okay. he branched out. He's got a couple of restaurants in Toronto actually. Okay. He just opened up a new one in Malibu, I think, or in, somewhere in LA. I'm trying to remember. I think he just opened it up this past year, like a couple months ago actually. He he's got one in Washington. I think he's got some in Philadelphia. I think he's got one in Philadelphia. Okay. So he, anyways, he. I think I think 
don't quote me on those, by the way. But uh, he's awesome. He his food is really cool. He's, he's got a Korean background. That's his background. But he the reason why he came to prominence is his food is he's kind of like one of the pioneers when it comes to Asian fusion. Okay. So his food is kind of that style. It's like he'll take things that are kind of Korean and mix it with American, and his food's it's supposedly like it's also done in like a really fun kind of hipster kind of trendy atmosphere. So it's mm. it's really kind of and. He was featured on Munchies um, by Vice Magazine and stuff like this a while ago. They did like they, I think they did like a Munchies episode on one of his restaurants. Okay, in, I think it was in Toronto. I think I remember watching that. But he's re- he's really cool. He's really engaging. He's he's. But this web series when I saw it and I'd, I'd heard about it, but I didn't wasn't sure when it was launching. But it's I liked watching it yesterday. It was it was interesting to see his take on what he was trying to do because I think. I, you were saying before that you were telling me before we went on on live with him on this podcast, you were saying that he got a lot of flack from Reddit, yeah. just because it's especially because well, the first episode's on pizza. And if anyone who hasn't watched it yet, um, he basically just talks about like the origin of pizza, like in Italy and New York City. It's funny because the I watched the Munchies episode a little while ago on and basically Munchies. If you've never seen the Chef's Night Out series, they basically. They do chefs will just like prominent chefs in certain cities all over the world. They'll go on a night out. And it's funny because one of them I watched. They talked about the restaurant that the guy he meets. I think it's called Lupolo. Oh yeah, and David Chang also ran uh, Lucky Peach. Well, he didn't run it because it was part of it. Yeah, which I had a subscription with, but it actually just they closed down last year. And Lucky Peach was probably one. Of the, it was probably the best food magazine in America. I think. It, well, I mean, it. What I liked about it was they were unique and they're very. They were not afraid to, to kind of like do things in a very unique and different way. And that's kind of like David Chang's signature. And you you feel a lot of that because I think this Ugly Delicious is produced by David Chang and Peter Meehan. And they – it was funny because when I was watching it, Peter actually looks so much like my uh, editor, uh, Andrew, actually. I thought it was kind of hilarious when I was watching it. Oh, um, that guy? Yeah. Yeah. He looked I, – I think to me they both kind of came off as being kind of douchey a little bit. Well, they got, when they went to the, when they went on their trip to Italy, they came across as super douchey. Like they came yeah, across as like super elitist fucks, which I, I thought like, – I did not like that part about the episode. Yeah. The part that I liked the most is when they were – yeah, doing all the stuff in like in Brook in like in Brooklyn and then stuff in Connecticut, which I thought was kind of cool, like yeah. the history of pizza in America. But the main guy, the first restaurateur, he comes across on that thing as like a total asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at some point when I was reading all the reviews and all the different opinions, of course, the internet these days, everybody has a voice. You gotta wonder at some point, like how it's obviously a very structured, meaningful presentation of what he was trying to get across, yeah. which is that authenticity is sort of like what you make of it, and is it dead? But I got to feel like a lot of this, the way it was shot and the way it was written is to portray them as a certain way. So I, I feel like with a Netflix production like that, like it turned out the way they probably wanted to. Like I, I have to believe that a lot of it is super scripted, right? Oh, probably. Like it's but not I, at any point, I don't think, off yeah. the cuff. I'm sure it's all scripted, like reality TVs. Sorry, this is a spoiler alert. Reality TV is not really reality. It's a written episode yeah. for those people that don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So you're telling me that that's exactly what they wanted with it. Did you hear about The Bachelor when they did that recently? No. Okay. I don't watch, Please I don't, enlighten me on well, what happened on The Bachelor. <laughs> well, I don't watch I don't watch The Bachelor, but I was reading on I was reading on How the, do you know what happened if you don't watch it? Well, cuz I was <laughs> I was in Mexico 2 weeks ago and I was flipping through the channels and I would like oh, okay. on this, and all of a sudden something Classic. Anyways, the, the the last episode supposedly of The Bachelor was like the greatest thing ever of this this season and it was greatest, like, according to who? Well, it was all over the internet. It was oh all ringer lights. So anyways, and with this ugly delicious, I mean, obviously they had an idea of what they were going for, but I think they were just trying to get the history and kind of why pizza has evolved to where it is. Yeah. But the one thing no, that, in that in that respect, I, it, it works totally. Yeah. In that sort of spectrum of like yeah. even the Domino's pizza, even though people shat on that 
a lot. What I like about it, and, and I think this is where, I th- when you were saying a lot of people were criticizing David Chang for this, which I think is kind of weird, but the one thing that I liked what he said, he's like, I shouldn't be told what I can and cannot like. And if I like fucking Domino's and I'm a chef, who fucking cares? I like fucking Domino's and there's nothing wrong with it. Now, did it come across as looking like they were plugging Domino's? Probably. Right. But Well, if you're going to say that, if you're going to say, okay, I like Domino's, blah, 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 you don't need to do a 15-minute no, like I th- I mini commercial for the company yeah. with the logo in prominence where he goes on deliveries. Well, the delivery thing, delivery I, thought was, I thought that was kind of You funny. can say that you like Domino's, that's cool. But well, obviously, were- Domino's was funding a little bit of the project, I'm sure. But again, I don't even believe that's at all off the cuff. I believe it's all scripted. Oh, probably. And that one scene at the very end, close to the very end when they're sitting at the table and uh, he's like, this is like kind of like nice, cute music playing in the background. He's like, so maybe what you're saying is that it doesn't matter where the pizza's made as long as it's made with love. Yeah. And then you think it's going to be like that classic, like, oh, they're going to end or fade to something. Else. Well, and then the other guy's like, nice that was, t- he's like, that was so fucking dumb. And <laughs> they all start laughing. I thought that was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, because well, it wasn't expected. Like the, the guy who owned the place in Brooklyn, even though he he comes across as like a yeah, what like does he really, say? He says no, you still have to know what fucking good pizza tastes like. Yeah, like well, really funny. Well, he comes across as like very cantankerous and very angry and grumpy, which is fine. That's probably his personality, and it's he definitely like, man. He sounds like a New Yorker, like crazy. But uh, I understand what they're trying to get at. Is they're basically just trying to say like, you know, uh, pizza's evolution has gone all over. Like I love the, the I think the best part of that episode is when they went into to Japan. I thought that was fucking cool. Like some, did you see the, like those pizzas that they made in Japan? Like that one they made with like the mayonnaise. Fuck, that looks, super weird. It's super weird, but like I like that. That that to me was like really cool because like right. you, you're well, sp- he says in the episode that his he thinks the fa- the best best pizza. Which is actually so an, another make- beef I had with with that is that he speaks in one part about the authenticity has no sort of geographical place. Like yeah. when you're in Italy and you're tasting the tomatoes, it's like. Those flavors you're not used to if you're from California or whatever. Like yeah. Every terroir has different taste profiles and flavor profiles. You know, if you're down in the south, avocados taste way different than they're up here. They're way more flavorful. They're yeah. more meaty. But then later on in the episode, he's like contradicting himself because he's like, oh, the best pizza's in Tokyo. Yeah. Like that, I found that to be kind of strange. Yeah. But maybe there was a purpose to that. I'm not sure. Well, I think – I think well, probably. Maybe. I don't know. I think a lot of it also comes down to – I think David is a little bit – you get you get the sense with this personality that he's definitely a rebel. I mean, he even says it in the episode. He he like part of his shtick when he interviews like with Wolfgang Puck. He's just like kind of like he's like you're me. He's like you're like the fine dining me. Or basically when basically what he's basically saying is like when Wolfgang Puck is like I'll put whatever I want to put on my pizza. I don't fucking care. And I think that's probably why people like David Chang and why his food was so influential. Like you know when he first started. And I think that's kind of what they're grappling with this whole web series is basically like we're gonna do the history of whatever. You know, I think the next episode is tacos, but they're going to do the the history of whatever tacos evolution from, you know, Mexico and stuff like this. And like with this one, they did pizza and, and, yeah, and Naples and, and all that stuff. Spoiler alert. Apparently Taco Bell is prominently. Yeah. So we're seeing a trend. So is it uh, yeah, but talk corporate about sponsorship? Taco Bell is disgusting. Well, so I, in researching this too, I did come across an article by a guy named Chris Crowley who writes for New York Times magazine called Grub Street. And he really digs into the fact that they're blatantly advertising for a fast food chain. And he, it's pretty, he goes into really detail about how terrible fast food industry is for the environment, for everything from workers' rights, wages, and all that shit. And I read that and it was really, really interesting. So definitely check that out if you want to hear, if you want to see some people uh, bitching on the internet mm. about a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think we, well, I mean, that's totally understandable and it's, it's understandable for him to have that perspective. And I mean, I, I'm not, I hate fast food. We'll say I rarely eat it, but 
And if anybody likes fast food, that's cool. You eat whatever you want. But I think that's what David well, comes yeah, across. Is I also think that's, a lot of people can't afford to eat exactly. restaurant food. Well, that's, right? the, that's, that's a whole other argument when it comes yeah. to like our food society and everything. And that's a different uh, pod. Yeah, exactly. But really, I think what David's going to say, and he's just like, I don't fucking care. If I like Taco Bell, I like Taco Bell. But it does make you, the viewer, watching this web series think, does he actually really like it or is he just plugging this? Right. So what, I, he I should, say- what he should have done is said, this is not a shameful plug. I actually like this pizza or he should at least, or he should state that now after the series is aired and maybe, maybe he will, maybe, maybe he will. Like I would, it'd be like, you know, I actually really like it. Like this is something that actually right. like, I like this pizza and, or I like Taco Bell and it, it maybe looks that way, but maybe that's not our intention. Yeah. But, or if it was, or say, yeah, they gave us, they gave us, you know, a million dollars to help fund this project. So. Yeah. I, I, I would be very shocked if he came out and said that. Well, he would never do it, but yeah. it, it I think what it'd do is it would at least help his credibility with this series. Yeah. A lot of these sort of blowback from the series so far has been that someone of his prominence, and even though he's a fuck you bad boy chef, you know, yeah. now who's become a sort of multimedia mogul in the industry. If you had that sort of soapbox, like a lot of people are saying that you really need to be more responsible. Like don't fucking get paid by a fast food chain. That's basically slaughtering animals and killing the environment, right? Like use your fame for something good. Talk about like your fine dining restaurants and like, you don't need to have that, that spot in there with Domino's. Yeah. Although it does, I think, give a broader spectrum of what he's trying to get across in this yeah. point. Well, a lot of the blowback has been about that specific. Well, point. they even talk about it in the episode, like when they're at that Domino's episode and the guy was just like, when it's really busy and we have stuff like this, we're like, there's like 300 pizzas an hour going through. Each, yeah. And he's like, whoa, cool. No, but, the, but, but then, <laughs> but then, you know, you're getting a lot of blowback, but a lot of people, like for most people, most people don't like, Neapolitan style pizzas. Most people don't go to in Vancouver here. Go to the Buffalas and the the Nickleys and stuff like this. You know, most people like Domino's and they like Pizza Hut, and that's the reason why those places are everywhere. I like Virtuous Pie. Yeah, Virtuous Pie. Is we we uh, <laughs> Jamie and I sometimes fight about this topic. I like Virtuous Pie. Yeah, because you're a vegan. Shout out to Virtuous Pie. Like don't cardboard. say that word, man. <laughs> I choose to eat a vegan diet. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, for. The track and food stuff when I was writing, like last year I did a burger crawl here in, in Vancouver mm-hmm. and then it was really cool. Went to a couple of burger places and checked them out and tried it. We did tried you, coin, did you uh, crown a winner? We did crown a winner. Mammy Taylor's. Oh, Mammy Taylor's. No, no, it wasn't Mammy's. It was oh. um, Au Comptoir. It was actually Au Comptoir. Mammy's came second. Oh, second. Okay. Yeah. Top, top three. That's so good. So it was Au Comptoir. But Au Comptoir can't even do their burger anymore like that because someone found out that they were cooking medium and oh, they yeah. got in trouble. But can't like, do that in Canada. Yeah, but their burger cooked It's a big no-no. Yeah, but their burger was so good. It was delicious. But anyways, we were, I was going to do a pizza one and I was gathering information and I went on Facebook and I'm like, hey, Facebook, tell me where all your, you know, your favorite pizza restaurants are in Vancouver and you know, we'll narrow it down to a certain and then we'll go do a crawl and see which one makes the best pizza. When I did this, I, a lot of people were saying like, go to this place, this place, this place, this place. And then someone commented, he's like, oh, you guys are only going to go to the pretentious places. No one's going to go to the Pizza Huts or like whatever, or like the Domino's and all stuff. And you think about it and naturally all of us, and I mean, yeah, these pizza, these other places probably do make, they do make better pizza, but there's a reason why Domino's and Pizza Hut are really popular is because people love that pizza. It's a different style of pizza. I think you know? you'd have to make the distinction gourmet pizza and then like North American style pizza. Yeah, exactly. And also like going back to that, to the show, I don't necessarily buy that because he does mention that part of his nostalgia for him. Yeah. I have a, a Nest Classic that I play games on because I have this huge nostalgia factor. So I get that. But, you know, I don't think you can really say that the Domino's is a good pizza just because you remember eating it as a kid, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I think you were actually touching on a really actually a good point there. Actually, what you're saying is like nostalgia is huge for everyone. I've never seen, and, and excuse me for this one, but I'm, I've never seen any Star Wars. Have you seen any Star Trek? 
Yeah, I, I've seen Star Trek Next Generation. Okay, so you're a Trekkie. That's fine. Yes, I've seen. If Next- you were to tell me that you hadn't seen either, I'd probably get up and I'd stop this recording and get up and walk out. <laughs> I've seen Next Generation, which I think is awesome. My brother was super nerdy into Love it. Next Gen. Was- Shout out to Tristan. He's yes. a huge Next Gen. But like. I've never watched Star Wars, but what it was funny, my brother and I brought this up to me a little while ago with the new movies coming out. He's just like, I guarantee if you watch the old movies now, you probably won't like them because the nostalgia is not there for you of watching them when you were a little yeah, kid. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, how many people do you talk to who say they're like traditionalists or they only watch the, the real Star Wars trilogy is the first three movies made? And that's just because of the nostalgia factor. I yeah, guarantee exactly. you. Well, yeah, because every kid watched it when they were eight years old and absolutely. it was like blew their minds. Yeah. But like my brother in law was like, you're going to watch it now and you're going to be like, eh. You like you might like it. And he's like you might like it, but you're probably going to watch it and think this is super dated. This was probably for kids. And you're you're now that you're a grown man, you're probably not going to appreciate it as much as people that did when they were younger. And it's going to be a nostalgia factor. Like Jurassic Park is like that for me. Jurassic Park, I watched it when I was like 13, and I love that movie. And it's but uh, it's a nostalgia thing. I remember seeing it in, in theater, and I remember absolutely. my mind being like. Ugh. So if you went to a restaurant, they had a Jurassic Park burger. You'd be like, oh my god! Yeah, I'm getting the Jurassic Park Brontosaurus burger. Amazing! Yeah, well, something, exactly, something like that. But, okay, I got you beat. I was at the theater in 1984 and saw the original Transformers animated movie. Oh, okay, that's, pretty, that's pretty, good. pretty fucking good. Oh, you'd have been so young for that. I was like six. Yeah, I was no, say. I was like five. I couldn't even. My mom let us go. It was crazy. The first one, the first movie I remember seeing was Batman. When I, in, at the drive-thru when I was The nine. original Batman? Yeah, the original Batman. Oh, Jack Nicholson. So good. When I was nine years old. Did I just say Jack Nicholas? He's a golfer, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Who, well, by I, the way, is like insanely overweight and like almost senile now. Do you see him on the uh, Lakers highlights getting yeah. escorted? <laughs> he had his ticket and he couldn't even walk to his seat. He looked like he didn't even know where he was. Uh, well, he's like in his mid-80s now. Yeah, that's yeah. old. He's he old. Look, but he looks old. Yeah. And he's, he's so overweight. But watching that, I remember watching that. I was like nine years old and I fell asleep. I like, yeah, I don't remember. That's the first, first memory of me, like ever going to like a theater, but it's a nostalgia thing. And even though, even though I remember watching like 10 minutes of the movie, but like, we're going back to the ugly, delicious thing. It's like you say the, for him, it's nostalgia. And that's why I think he just brings it up. Let's do a little rapid fight here before we uh, end things off. My friend Ron actually sent me some, sent me a link this past week about uh, the Bordeaux release, the 2015 Bordeaux release. And the wines are actually getting, they got six, as per the wine enthusiasts, I think they got 600-point scores. Uh, for everyone listening who doesn't know, Jamie is a certified sommelier. I love that word, sommelier. I'm actually an aspiring tea sommelier, and yes, that's a thing. But Jamie has finished his level four, right? Uh, yeah. And I'm also a certified sommelier through the quartermaster as well, so... Which means he knows a lot of shit about wine. <laughs> and not just like the bullshit stuff that most of us just know by reading the back of the bottle. No, but it was kind of cool because when I saw that, it's interesting to see that come up with like the 100-point scores. Like I'm not a big fan of the score system because I think it just it, – it, what it does is it, it skews the idea for, of wines. And also just like a lot of the wines that are like listed were like Chateau Margaux, Chateau Lafitte, Rothschild, and like the big houses, Petrus and stuff like this. Which are wines that I'm never ever gonna probably ever gonna drink because they're like they start at like five thousand dollars a bottle, right? And they're snapped up like really quickly. But it, what it does get into is seeing this. It speaks highly of the vintage, which I'm excited about. And I, that caught my eye. And that's why I think Ron sent it to me. It was it was interesting to because generally when wines like that come out, the vintage usually is pretty strong. And I think 2015 was actually a pretty strong year because it was warm. And it's Bordeaux has always had an issue with its vintage variation so much in the past like 2009 2010 were strong vintages but generally some years can be really poor uh, anybody that's looking for 2015 vintage of bordeaux i think that's something that you keep an eye out for then the other one the other one i want to talk about really quickly here was before we finish was this week at laboratory they're actually doing the michelin on the road series which is really cool and i think it's uh 
if anybody can, I don't, I think it's probably sold out by now, but it's actually really cool that Vancouver's getting this. For anybody that doesn't know, the mission series is something that mission, the mission guide, if you don't know about the mission guide, is basically where mission goes around and they rank all the best restaurants in the world by the stars that they get. Gordon Ramsay was famously awarded his three mission stars back in 2001 for his restaurant in London. And is that the highest rating you can get? Yeah, basically what it three? is. It's, it's, a, it's like one of the things that chefs aspire for in okay. restaurants. So, so you can have a one, two or three, one, two, rating. three rating. And what they do with the mission on the road series. And it's really cool that Vancouver got this and chef Lee Cooper is doing it is that they go to cities that don't have mission stars. So they take a restaurant that does have a mission star and then they, they take the chef from that restaurant and then they go to cities that don't have them. And it kind of like, showcases the style of food it, it's a cool thing for the two chefs to get together and they do like a pairing and they do their own like five you know set dinner and i think this chef that comes coming here i think he's coming from his restaurant boca i think that's what it's called and he's based out of uh, chicago and he used to work at 11 madison park in new york and i think this is really cool i think tickets were 195 dollars. i think that includes wine pairings and everything but it like laboratory has already been doing kind of like their high-end series with the one jailer's muse they started last year where it's like you get to buy tickets for the event and it's only once a month and I think it's only for like nine people and you get to sit in front of uh, the kitchen and you get to actually be cooked right in front of. Mm. But I think what it is, is I'm excited about it and it's hopefully more stuff like this happens to Vancouver is it shows that our dining scene is starting to evolve and, you know, they're, you know, one thing I like about the guys at Laboratoire and what they've done and like the guys at Kies Tanto is they're not afraid to push the boundaries and really go for it and like, you know, really, because I think people like myself and I know other people like the high-end stuff and they want to they taste some of the best foods in the world. And, uh, if, you know, if we can have more events like this here in Vancouver, I think it's pretty cool. So, shout so, out to anyone who's going to this. It's pretty cool. It should be fun. And there'll be vegan options, of course? Uh, no, there will not. Mm-hmm.